Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to uh, uh, use today to to try to delve more um, deeply into the Torah portion and to bring out some 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 hidden sort of connections. Uh, and and I'm going to be learning uh, from from the Magalia Mukos and from the Jikova Rebbe and show just uh, just these amazing these amazing depths I, I, I think uh, that are right in front of our eyes but but it's you know it, it's it's hard to see unless you're you're functioning at their level but but they brought it down for us so so we can sort of like swim in these waters too and um, and so so I want to talk about um, the, 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 the tribes of Yaakov Avinu, but also I want to begin with um, a discussion uh, brought by, by the Magalia Mukos about, um, about the connection between Abraham and Yosef. So we really know that <clears throat> when we talk about the Avos, and these are, so to speak, the, the fathers, um, we're talking about Abraham, Yitzchak, and, and Yaakov. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and but but the truth is is that if you if you really read the Torah, you, you'll see that this extends into the next generation as well, meaning to say that Yaakov has twelve children or thirteen children actually, including Dina, and we're going to go into more depth in that uh, in a little while, but but he has twelve tribes, um, but the really the, the leaders, the, 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 his star student, so to speak, his star son, is really Yosef. And the Parsha actually begins with the words, actually it's um, in, the, in the first Pasuk, Ele todos Yaakov Yosef. Meaning, these are the generations of Yaakov, and then the next word in the Torah is Yosef. And the fact that it says Yaakov Yosef, the fact that they're right next to each other, the rabbis understand that really the essence of Yaakov went into Yosef, really into all of the tribes and into all of Israel. But nonetheless, Yosef has a special status in terms of his connection with Yaakov. And of course, we know just on the most basic level that Yosef was the first child of Yaakov's, uh, you know, great love, Rachel. So, so there's an emotional connection there. But on a spiritual level, it's, it's very deep as well. We know that, that, that Yosef was learning in the tent of Yaakov all the secrets of the Torah. So Yaakov was giving them over to Yosef directly. Um, we also know that there are many similarities between Yaakov's life and Yosef's life. Um, meaning to say that when Yaakov went away from his family, that he was gone for 22 years, Yosef was missing in action for 22 years. They were both born circumcised. They both had the enmity of their brother or brothers, right? Esau hated Yaakov. The brothers, you know, had issues with Yosef. So this is, um, so there are many, many parallels, many, many parallels. Um, and we, we learned, I think, last week or the week before, this amazing Torah from the Jikova Rebbe, that in, in gematria, in the form of gematria melui, which is when you take the, the numerical count of the, the inside of the word, that the, that the gematria of the word Yaakov, using this technique of melui, um, equals uh, Yos, uh, Mashiach ben Yosef. So, so there's a form of gematria where Yaakov equals Mashiach ben Yosef. So again, the, and especially when you account for this type of gematria, which is really talking about the inside of a word. So if you're talking about the inside of Yaakov, again, how Yaakov gave over his inside to, to Yosef, the fact that the inside of the word Yaakov numerically equals Mashiach ben Yosef is, is very meaningful. So all of this is just to, in a sort of like, in a few moments, to help to establish the spiritual credentials, so to speak, of Yosef, 
of the greatness of Yosef and how Yosef really is a very worthy um, continuation of the line and a very appropriate continuation of the line of Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and now Yosef. So I'm just setting the stage here for you to understand um, what the Megalia Mukos is going to do. Because the Megalia Mukos is going to take this construct that we're suggesting and show you how these bookends of Avraham and Yosef work together. Right? Because if we want to say that Yosef really is the, the, the end point, um, then, then we can take the beginning and the end. And of course, this is a technique that you see in, in, in deep Torah study all of the time. You, um, you'll take the, the, uh, the first word of a Pasuk and the last word of a Pasuk of a verse, and, and that will be meaningful. You'll take the Shalah HaKodesh, one of the greatest Torah commentators, says you can look at the, what's going on in the beginning of a Parsha and the end of a Parsha, and you can see a, 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 a great truth will come out when you, when you compare beginnings and ends. Okay? So, so, so the Megalia Mukos is now going to look at the beginning of this chain, Avraham Avinu, and go to the end, Yosef, and start to see in these two bookends some macro patterns and, um, and, and a real overview in terms of Jewish destiny. And it's going to culminate with what I think is a, a, a stunning, stunning gematria, a, a divine gematria, you know. Um, so, so just, again, on, 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 on the most basic level, he, he, he starts by saying that pointing to a Pasuk, a verse in the Torah, where it says that Yaakov Avinu now sends Yosef to, to go and, and to see his brothers. Okay? Now everybody knows that this visit that Yosef is going to make to see his brothers is going to be a, a destiny-changing event in, in Jewish history and world history. Because this, this trip that Yaakov is now dispatching Yosef on is now going to result in Yosef being sold as a slave and then going down into Egypt and then eventually rising up and becoming really next to Paro, the leader of Egypt, which is the primary power in the entire world at that point, to save Egypt from starvation, which is then going to um, basically save the world and then going to bring the family of Israel down into Egypt, which will set the stage for the entire Egyptian servitude, the whole period of slavery. So this whole set of events, which is now going to be basically 200 plus years worth of major historical events, is now taking place with this conversation between Yaakov and Yosef. It's an amazing thing when you think about it, just to... Just to step aside for one moment. History is made with real people. And history is made with just two people having conversations. And we sometimes lose sight of that. We think that, oh, you know, history was really made at this, um, <clears throat> you know, this, this, this uh, meeting of nations that took place in Geneva. And it was all the Nations, that, and then that's when history is made. But history is made, you know, be before then, before those meetings, because those meetings are the results of relationships. And those relationships are the results of meetings that take place on an elevator, at a dinner table, right? At a country club. So, so be mindful of the fact that, that that you see, the, the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because it's a very empowering thought to know that you can be making history based on a conversation that you're having with another person. And don't delude yourself into thinking 
that history changing events only take place in these sort of like very rarefied conferences. You know? Because a lot of times the way a leader will decide something will be based on a relationship that's totally social that they had much earlier. So let me just give you one concrete example so you know what I'm talking about. After the UN voted to make to recognize Israel as a country, it was essentially, remember, the UN was more or less brand new at this point. And it didn't have a lot of clout on the, on the world scene. And remember, the UN was just a, a, a reimagining of something called the League of Nations, which Wilson had set up in the, in the earlier part of the 1900s. And the League of Nations was like a big joke, and it fell apart completely. So given that, why should the UN be taken more seriously on the world scene, especially since it was also a newish organization? Okay, what, what would a proclamation from them mean uh, you know, amidst a, a, a rivalry and enmity that was going on for hundreds or thousands of years between two peoples? So what if they say that you can have this country, right? What would be meaningful is if the United States of America then recognized what the UN said. So, so really, everything was kind of like based on, is America now going to recognize the state of Israel or not, based on what the UN did? You see, that's, that's the big thing, okay? So who's the president at that time? Harry Truman. And Harry Truman doesn't know whether it's in the United States' interests. Remember, he understands that this is going to be a very alienating thing to the Arab nations. And so does he want to basically, you know, um, imperil United States influence in this entire region of the world in order to do something uh, that may not be in the United States' best, best interest, right? Or immediate interest, anyway. And so what happens is he agrees to, and I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now, I apologize, but he agrees to... Um, allow an old friend of his who he ran a hat store with in the earlier part of his life who was Jewish to come into the Oval Office into the White House. And he pleads with Truman to recognize the state of Israel. And Truman says, okay, basically for you I'll do it. And so all of a sudden, Israel is now a real country because the president of the United States had a positive relationship with his Jewish hat merchant partner from many years before that. Right? It's, it's, it's hilarious, right? Except, except it's not hilarious. Except this is actually how the world works. So... so so you have to understand that, that history is made with friendships and, and then God weaves the destiny of people's lives so that they go to high places and then all of a sudden that relationship, the fact that you were good in business with that person, honest in business, or you were a real friend to that person's whoever, mother, father, brother, sister, whatever it was, all of a sudden, that becomes an incredibly significant thing. <coughs> so again, I'm just, I'm just telling you, this is just an aside, but hopefully you'll, you'll understand the message of this. Um, you know, in, in Hollywood, they, maybe in the business world in general, they, 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 I heard an expression which is that the, um, um, be, you know, when, when you have a certain position, let's say, toward the top of the ladder, they say, be nice to the people who are coming up because those are the same people who are going to be dealing with you when you're going down. <laughs> right? So, so anyway, there's, 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 there's truth to this. Um, so again, I'm just zeroing in on the fact that Yaakov Avinu is sending Yosef on this trip to visit his brothers. And this little conversation, go visit your brothers, is now going to result in the next couple of hundred years of Jewish history. 
Because again, when he sees the brothers, they're going to sell him into slavery. He's going to go down into Egypt. Then the family of Israel is going to go down into Egypt. And that's going to be for the next couple of hundred years. And it all begins over here. Okay. Two people talking. Now, the Torah gives us a very interesting hint. Because on a simple level, it seems like Yaakov Avinu is just sending his son. And he doesn't know what's happening. Right? He's just saying, go check up on your brothers. But the Torah gives us a hint that says, no, something much deeper was going on over here. And the hint that the Torah gives us is that it says that this conversation between Yaakov and Yosef took place in a place called Emek Hebron. Now, Emek Hebron means the valley of Hebron. Hebron is a location in Israel. So, so that what's so meaningful about that? Well, what's so meaningful is that Hebron is not in a valley. <laughs> so if you're talking about Emek, Hebron, and Hebron is not a valley, then you have to look at this word for valley, Emek, again. Emek also means the depths. As in someone saying something and another person going, whoa, that's really deep. Right? So the depths of Hebron is when they had this conversation. So, so, so the commentators say, the Zohar says, that um, what, is, what is the depths of Hebron referring to? To Avraham Avinu. To Avraham. Because Avraham lived in Hebron, and he's the first of the Abos, the first of the fathers who's buried in Hebron. So that's in, even more significant when you realize that, that when Hashem made the pact, the eternal covenant with Abraham on behalf of all of his descendants, the Jewish people, that Hashem told Abraham that your descendants are going to be basically enslaved in another land, in Egypt, right? So, so the Zohar is saying that Yaakov Avinu understood that when he was sending Yosef out on this mission, that this was going to be in fulfillment to what Avraham was told by God. In other words, this prophecy was now going to be fulfilled by sending Yosef to visit his brothers. So Yaakov knew what was going on. Right? So this is... This is... This is amazing. And seemingly, Yosef knew what was going on also. You know, because, you know, this whole idea that one party knows and the other party knows, we know that from the Akedah. You know, we think that, um, that Abraham takes this little baby up on this altar, but the sources say that Yitzchak was like in his 30s, right? And then Yitzchak asks Abraham on the way to the Akeda, you know, where's the animal that we're going to sacrifice? And then Avraham says, Hashem will provide. And then Yitzchak understands at that moment, oh, it's me. And then the next line is, and then they went together. Meaning Yitzchak not only understood that it was him, but he was on board. You know, so, so I'm just referencing this so that if we say that Yaakov Avinu understood the implications of sending Yosef, we have, to, we have to believe that Yosef also was up to the task and knew, understood the implications of this. Okay. So Yosef goes and he visits. So again, what I was setting up earlier was this connection between Avraham being the beginning of this process and Yosef being the culmination of the process, right? And here you see, over here, the Megalia Mukos is telling you, right by this mission, this very epic sort of beginning of the mission, they're doing it in the place of Abraham, 
and Yosef is being sent. All right? Now there's a, a very interesting, uh, very interesting gematria now, which is not the one I was referring to before, but another one just to show you the connection here, which is that Emek Hevron, which means the valley of Hevron, where this conversation between Yaakov and Yosef is taking place, and again is the place of Avraham, right? Emek Hevron is the same gematria as Kur Habarzel. Now, that means the iron furnace. When it talks about the Egyptian servitude, the slavery that we went through in Egypt, that is known as the Kur Habarzel, because it was basically, we were thrown into this molten cauldron, basically. But then we became a nation there. So, in other words, again, what's being linked here through Gumatria is Emek Hebron, which means Avraham, because that was the place of Avraham. That's where this conversation was taking place, which was going to culminate in the Egyptian servitude, which is Kur HaBarzel. Same Gematria. Again, linking Avraham and Yosef. Okay? But now, now it goes further. Because again, this relationship between Avraham and Yosef is sort of like this microcosm that reflects on, on Jewish destiny beyond that. Because not only is this the beginning of the Jews going down into Egypt, but remember, when the sea splits, the rabbis say, why did the sea split? And there are different reasons given. But one of the main reasons that's given is because the sea saw the bones of Yosef. Because the bones of Yosef are carried out before Yosef dies, he, pr- he makes everyone promise that his bones won't remain in Egypt, but, when, but that God promised to take the Jews out of Egypt, and when that promise is fulfilled, that they should take out his bones as well. Which is a beautiful thing, because it's sort of like Yosef, who was the leader of Egypt, right? was basically saying to his brothers and all the descendants, I'm going to be here with you the whole time. But when you leave, I'm going to leave with you. you know, I'm, and, and so that's just, just an amazing act of brotherhood. So they take his bones out. Moshe actually takes his bones out. In fact, it says while everyone was going to get all the gold and silver from the Egyptians that they left with, right? Moshe at that time was actually looking for the bones of Yosef. So Moshe gets the bones of Yosef. The sea sees the bones of Yosef and splits. So again, it's not just that, um, it's not just Yosef going down to Egypt. That's, that's still the middle of the story. The story continues that Yosef basically ushers them out of Egypt. And then it says that when we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, the angels didn't want to give it to Moshe Rabbeinu. And Hashem changed the face of Moshe Rabbeinu to Avraham and said to the angels, this is the one who gave you hospitality and this is how you treat him? And the angels went, oh, okay. And they allowed the Torah to be given in the merit of Avraham. So again, we have these amazing bookends of Avraham and Yosef where it's going down into Egypt, but also getting out of Egypt in the merit of Yosef, and then receiving the Torah in the merit of Avraham. So here you have a whole overview of the destiny of the Jewish people. Now listen to this. This is the gematria I was referring to. To me, this is amazing. Avraham's gematria, his name is 248. Now 248 is, is especially significant because This is the number of positive mitzvahs in the Torah. Right? Out of the 613, 248 are, God says, do this. And that's 248, which is the numerical equivalent of the name of Abraham. That in itself is amazing. Now the Magalia Mukos points out, Yosef is always known as Yosef HaTzadik, Yosef the Righteous One. 
because he was able to withstand unbelievable tests. Okay, he was the only Jew in exile. He's the only one, right? And he managed to maintain his dignity and his, you know, his religious loyalty and, and faith in Hashem throughout all sorts of crazy things. So he's called Yosef HaTzadik, Yosef the Righteous One. Now the Gematria of Yosef HaTzadik, the Megalia Mukos points out, is 365, which is the, the number of negative prohibitions in the Torah. Which means that Avraham plus Yosef HaTzadik equals 613. Which is, as they say, you, you can't make that stuff up, you know? It's incredible, actually. And again, that, that culmination, those bookends, and I think it's especially appropriate that Yosef stands for the thou shalt nots, if you will, because if you think of like two of the things that probably most distinguished him, one was the fact that he didn't go with Potiphar's wife, even though there was this amazing temptation to do that, and she was relentless in her um, trying to seduce him, it said that she would change her clothes five times a day. Right? And, and she, was, she didn't stop trying to, to be with him. But he, 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 he never did. So, but that was something that he didn't do. Again, Yosef HaTzadik equals 365, which is the prohibitions in the Torah. So he didn't do that. Also, he didn't hate his brothers. Right? It would have been so natural to have resented and hated his brothers. And he didn't do that. And Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach says that, and he says this is a chiddish, because generally speaking, when we talk about Yosef HaTzadik, it's that he wasn't with Potiphar. But Rabbi Shlomo says that he didn't hate his brothers. And that's really why he was Yosef HaTzadik. And he says, I think this is a chiddish, a new thought, because he says, I haven't heard anyone else say this. But in other words, it took, especially after you've been sent to prison and sold into slavery and everything like that, I mean, you have good reason to, to have, you know, some issues with your brothers after that. And the fact that he just said, you know, it was the hand of God, and God really just meant good to come from all of this, that is, that's an astonishing level. That's astonishing, you know. And to tell you, I'll tell you something, to tell you how great, you see, it always takes two to tango, all right? My dad used to say in the name of, um, I don't know who it was, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt, that it takes two to be insulted. The one who insults and the one who accepts the insult. You know, just because someone insults you, it can bounce off you. That's an option that you have. Who says that you have to accept the insult? You know, I'll tell you something. One of the greatest things I ever heard in my life, and this is, um, I think this is in, in Holy Brother, um, which is an account of, of um, uh, stories about the life of Reb Shlomo Karlbach. Someone went to rob him, and they pulled a gun on him. Okay? So this is a scary business. Someone's pointing a gun at you, a loaded gun, right? And what, how did he react? He said, he said, I'm so sorry that you have to make your living this way. And he went and he hugged him. Can you imagine, like, a guy is pointing a gun at you and all you have at that moment is compassion for how this person is making his living? That's like, that's an amazing, that's astonishing, actually. You see... A person doesn't have to accept the insult of another person. Sometimes a person can just be compassionate, you know? Wow, I, I'm, I feel so bad that you have so much hate inside you. I mean, I'm so sorry about that. You know, you know what is, because whatever you're thinking about me, I can tell you is incorrect. So why do I have to, you know... <laughs> Why do I have to, A, why do I have to accept what you're saying? And B, I feel sorry that you're, you're so misled. 
That's all. You know, this takes a certain amount of security. M most people are, don't have that level of security. They're so insecure, you know? And, and it's a great thing in life if you can be secure. I'm saying emotionally secure. Because then, you know, I tell you, you know who one of the most insecure people in the world was? Haman. Because Haman, you know, at least in American terms, had it all. <laughs> he had giant, huge, crazy amounts of wealth. He was really like a, like a billionaire. He was second to the king, and the king controlled the entire known world. All right? He also had a huge influential family, tons of kids. You know, he was like, he, he really, you know, in terms of just material success, he, he was there. And Mordechai wouldn't bow down to him. Basically was the only one who wouldn't bow down to him. And he says these words, it's recorded in the Megillah. If he, what is all I have worth to me if he doesn't bow down to me? Can you imagine? Can you imagine that someone can have so much and so little simultaneously? You see, a lot of people go through life, and just be aware of this. You know, in, um, in, in Vegas, you have something called... Uh, well, in all betting, you have something called like double or nothing, right? Or let's say you win a hand of cards and then you take all of your chips and you put them up and you go double or nothing. And let's say you win again. Then you take all of your chips and you put them there and you go double or nothing. And let's say you win again and you put all of your chips there and you say double or nothing, right? A lot of people do that with their self-esteem, right? They, they... For decades, they're obeying the law, paying their taxes, being a responsible neighbor, being to their best ability, the best person they can be, right? And yet, if they walk into a dry cleaner's and the dry cleaner is rude to them, they're like, ugh! You know why? Because they're constantly putting all of it, or this person gave me this look, or that person did that, because they're constantly taking their self-esteem and just wagering it on every human interaction that they have. And they're going, you know, double or nothing, double or nothing, double or nothing. And they're empowering people. These are very accomplished people. And they're empowering, I don't want to say nobodies, because everyone has dignity, but essentially to them, nobodies with the power to take away their complete self-esteem. Why are you empowering other people to take away your self-esteem? Why are you handing them the key to your lock? Why? Can you imagine if like everyone you met on the street, on the bus, you walk into a bus and you walk up and down the bus handing everyone the password to your email accounts? Who would do such a thing? And yet people do that all the time. How can it be that any any person that you deal with, really, should have the ability to upset you unless you give them that ability to upset you. So now, let's, let's take a look. So, so what I'm getting at, let me just finish this point. What I'm getting at is something very tragic, I think. You see, because Yosef forgave his brothers, but there's something that always breaks my heart every time I read it, and it's coming in a few parshas at the end, toward the end of Vayechi, where it says that the brothers never believed that they were forgiven. See, this is the flip side of it. You see, just like it takes two people to be insulted, the one who insults and the one who accepts the insult, and you don't have to accept an insult, right? So, it takes two people to be forgiven. The one who forgives, usually we don't concentrate on that side, right? We say it automatically, that if you're forgiven, that you receive the forgiveness. But here you see 
that that's not an automatic thing. There has to be the one who forgives, and in a way, just as importantly, the one who allows themselves to be forgiven. There are a lot of people who walk around who have been forgiven, who, you know, I, I'll tell you something. I received an email from someone. Someone did something, they accused me of something that was blatantly false, a thousand percent false. And it was very upsetting to me. And I wrote them that, it, that, that what you accused me of is, is very upsetting, right? And, and they apologized and I forgave them, right? I think something like five or six years later, something like that, they wrote me this very emotional email saying, please forgive me. It broke my heart. I wrote them back. I, I forgave you six years ago. The person was walking around. You, a person has to be able to also know how to be forgiven. You know, this is the, this is the, 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 the great thing that we talk about every single year. That after Yom Kippur, you say Mariv. Right? So you've been in shul day, you've been basically cleansed of absolutely everything, and now you say mariv, and you get to slach lanu, please forget us, and you forgive us, and you clap yourself on the chest, right? And the question is, what am I clapping myself on the, che on the chest for? And the answer that I heard, which I, I still think is great, is because you know why you need to ask for forgiveness? Because you don't believe that you were just forgiven on Yom Kippur. So the brothers didn't reach that level. They didn't believe that they were forgiven, even though Yosef forgave them. So anyway, so now I want to make another point. Something that I heard from uh, Rabbi Safranovich, which is, you know, again, let's talk about on the positive side of success now. Yosef is, is really in many ways, the, the model of success, right? I mean, for him to rise from being in prison in Egypt, remember, Egypt is the, the lowest place in the world, and now we've got prison in Egypt, which has to be the lowest of the lowest place in the world, right? And he rises all the way to the top, all the way to the top, and saves the world from salvation, from starvation. So... So, the first time the word success is used in the Torah. So, you always want to look at where's the first time that a word is used in the Torah, because that's sort of like the headquarters of the meaning of that word. So, in, 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 to say that someone is successful, in Hebrew, that's, that means matzliach. That's how you say it, matzliach. You know, like when people you see when they bless each other or when they say goodbye to each other, you often hear people go, you should be matzliach, right? That means successful, right? So where's the first time the word success is used in the Torah? This word matzliach, to be successful. So it's used in connection with Yosef, Yosef at Sadek. So not so surprising, right? Because Yosef was really super successful, un unquestionably. But now I'm going to ask you a more challenging question, okay? At what point in his life do you think the word matzliach is used? That's right. While he's in prison. <laughs> Which is very surprising, because if you think about it, I mean, why not that he's the star pupil of Yaakov? Use it in his early life, right? Before he's going to be sold. Right? When he's just like a, like a rocket going up. Use it at that point in his life. Use it at the point in his life where he becomes the leader of, of the world. Right? Use it, use it then. But to use it while he's in prison? So, so, so we have to look at the actual 
Pasuk, it says that while he was in prison, that Hashem was with him and he was successful. And so the rabbi said to me that, that the definition of success is if Hashem is with you, if you are with Hashem, then no matter what the circumstances of your life are, that's the definition of success. To be connected to God, that is the definition of success, period, end. And that Yosef, even at his lowest state in his life, when he's in prison, falsely accused, by the way, falsely accused, and he's in prison for something like 11 years, something like that. It's a long time. So while he's falsely accused in Egyptian prison, he never gave up on God. And that is called the definition of success. That even in a person's lowest point, if they can still hold on, that's success. That's real success. Okay. So I want to switch topics and, and tell you something that I learned this week from, from again, it's, it's the, the Imre Noam, the, the Jikova Rebbe brings it from the Magali Amukos, who's bringing it from the Ari. So that's the, the, the chain of, of learning, you know? And I, I was thinking, you know, it's so special to like, to hear a thought from, you know, the Imre Noam, the Jikova Rebbe is bringing it from the Magali Amukos, who's bringing it from the Ari. It's like, you know, you know, you can hear, I, I can play like a Mozart record, and I'm hearing Mozart, but, you know, if, you know, Chopin is listening to Mozart, <laughs> and then Stravinsky is hearing it from Chopin, who's hearing it from Mozart. <laughs> Something else, you know? Something else. So, so this is going to have a, what, what is maybe a, a very new, surprising bit of information. Um, for me, it was anyway. So, so really, we'll start with two questions, and we'll show how this new piece of information will answer both of the questions. Okay? So when... When uh, it says that Ruvain is the one who got Yosef, went to get Yosef out of the pit. Yosef was thrown into a pit, awaiting to be sold. And by the way, it was a very interesting cheshben account that the brothers made, because they weren't positive that Yosef maybe didn't deserve to die, because really they, they wanted to kill him. Because they felt that Yosef was cutting out the 11 brothers from their inheritance as Jews. See, that's, that's the explanation that's given, because why on earth would the brothers ever do this to Yosef? And it was an interesting an interesting bit of logic that they uh, applied, which was incorrect, by the way, but it at least gives, makes them a little bit more sympathetic, which is that they said, you know, Avraham had Yitzchak and Yishmael, and the line just went to Yitzchak, and Yishmael got cut out. Yitzchak has Yaakov and Esav, and the line just goes to Yaakov, and Esav gets cut out. So now that Yosef has this coat, right, the famous coat of many colors, and they know the closeness between Yaakov and Yosef, ah, so the brothers say, I see. So Yosef is going to get the line, and all of us are going to get cut out? Uh, no, sorry, that doesn't work. And he's going to be the one to cut us out? No, sorry, that doesn't work. So, interesting, interesting, you know? They, they were like, are, are we not children of Yaakov and of Avraham and Yitzchak also? This is also our heritage. So it's a, but of course, Yosef had no intention at all 
of doing that. So anyway, um, Reuven, so, so, so they decided, well, maybe he's innocent. Maybe what we'll do is we'll let heaven decide whether or not he's guilty. So they put him in a pit filled with snakes and scorpions. And again, this is how the Torah um, communicates. The Torah communicates very subtly. What it says is, they put him, this is what the text actually says, they put him in a pit where there was no water. That's all it says. So the rabbis go, oh, there was no, oh, there was no water? Ah, but there were other things. <laughs> and what were those other things? Snakes and scorpions. So again, the way the Torah communicates in a very subtle way, right? And the idea is that basically human beings, if they're connecting to our creator in a sincere and real way, the animal kingdom is afraid of us and won't, won't, won't attack us. If we have, if we have that um, um, integrity about us, right? You see, Cain, when Cain killed Abel, it says that Hashem put a sign on his forehead. And the reason why he put a sign on, on, on Cain, Cain's forehead is because Cain had lost that aspect of um, that shield, basically, against the animal kingdom. Because he had murdered, he was now vulnerable to attack because he had surrendered that level of godly dignity to himself. So this is, and, and, and he said to God, I'm afraid. I'm going to go out into the world. I'm going to wander and I'm going to be killed by wild animals. So it says Hashem put a sign on his forehead, meaning to say that you are a child of God, basically. And that this was his protection again. So the brothers said, let's put him in this pit with snakes and scorpions. And you know what? If he's guilty, the animals will do it for us. They'll execute the sentence from heaven. And of course we know that they didn't touch him. They didn't touch him because he was innocent. Um, so the question is, it says, Reuven came to get Yosef. So the rabbis ask, where did Reuven come from to get Yosef? What was Reuven doing? And now this opens up a window into a very interesting, mysterious thing that took place. Actually, it's not so mysterious, but it's just striking, just in terms of family dynamics, right? It says, Ruvain came from doing tshuva. So what was he doing tshuva over? What was he trying to fix in terms of his deeds? Because when, remember, Yaakov had two main wives, Rachel and Leah. And Leah had just been nifter, not so long ago, she had just passed away. And so the question was, where was going to be the main house of Yaakov? Was it going to be with Rachel's handmaid? Right? Who I guess maybe Yaakov would have a more of an emotional connection to since she was the one who was helping his great love, Rachel, right? So maybe it would be natural for him to just remain where he was and then... But Reuven, who was the first child of Yaakov and the eldest son of Leah, said, well, now that Rachel is gone, your main house has to be in Leah's tent. And so what Reuven did was he moved the bed of Yaakov Avinu he moved the bed of his father into the tent of Leah. And that was a bummer, basically. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, that was a bummer. And Ruvain loses his position, basically, of firstborn because he did that. Basically, a person has to understand their real boundaries and their boundaries in terms of dealing with your parents. And there are certain lines that you don't cross and you don't involve yourself in. 
And this is one of those things that was basically not his business. And for him to have made it his business and to have done something so bold was considered very, very negative. And in fact, when um, Yaakov is giving the blessings over at the end of his life, he talks about how Ruvain is unstable like water. You know, the, the firstborn has to have a, a, uh, a, 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 a foundational aspect to them that you can, you don't want to build a water, you don't want to build a, an office building on a lake, <laughs> right? It's going to, you can't build it on water. That's, that's the opposite of a foundation. So, so the Ari says the following. Based on uh, a verse in the Tehillim in the Psalms, when it's talking about the tribes of Israel, the tribes of Israel are referred to as Shifte Ka. And we're saying Ka right now, but really that's just, that's how you'll hear it said. Ka really means Ya, means Yud and He, which is the name of God. But people say Ka out of respect. So Shifte Ka means the tribes of God. That's, that's how the, the tribes of Israel are referred to. Okay? So, so the Ari, really, right, one of the, or perhaps our greatest Kabbalist, right, understands Shifte Ka to mean the following, so, something fascinating. Remember, Yud and He, this, that's this name, Ka, adds up to 15. So what he understands Shifte Ka to mean is the tribes of the 15 that actually there weren't supposed to be just these 12 tribes or 13 children, counting Dina. But really the total was supposed to be 15 offspring of Yaakov. Not, 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 not what we have now. And that when Ruvain moved the bed that basically he stopped the flow of these two souls from coming down. However, we're supposed to understand that, that there were two more children that were destined to come down to Yaakov, but because Ruvain moved the bed, they didn't come down. And so Ruvain was doing tshuva over this as well, that these two neshamas didn't come down. So what does this have to do with our, 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 our opening question? of going to get Yosef out of the pit, because Ruvain, through Ruach HaKodesh, understood, through prophecy, understood that Yosef was going to have two, more, two, two kids, because Yosef has Ephraim and Menashe. And he understands, if I save Yosef's life, then those two children will come in to complete the count. Now with this in mind, it answers a question in an amazing way, which is our second question. Why does Yaakov Avinu count Menashe and Ephraim? Why does he say to them, from now on, remember, these are his grandchildren, Yosef's two sons, from now on, I'm counting you as my children. What's wrong with them being his grandchildren? He's got a lot of kids already. So what's wrong with having holy grandchildren? Right? Why does he have to change the status of them from grandchildren to children? So with this in mind, you, you get a, an amazing answer. You have the 12 tribes, plus Dina is 13. Yaakov also understood that I'm supposed to have 15, that it's supposed to be the Shifte Ka, the tribes of Yud and He, 15. And so this is why Yaakov Avinu counts Menashe and Ephraim as his sons, bringing the account to 15. Now, the Jikover Rebbe says that you can see this whole episode referred to in the opening words of this week's Parsha. In, it says, Vayeshev Yaakov Be'eretz Migure Aviv. Okay? So, Yeshev, Vayeshev, the word Yeshev is Yud Shin Beis. 
If you rearrange the letters Yud, Shin, and Beis, you get Yud, Beis, Shin. Yud and Beis is 12, and the Shin is Shvatim. So in other words, the Parsha opens up with a mention, a very cryptic mention, of the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of Yaakov, the next word. Be'eretz Megore. Megore is the gematria of the name Ruvain. So because of Ruvain, there were only 12 tribes. There it is, right? Right in the text there. You see, these are, again, these, these are exalted commentaries that are seen just like the most intricate teachings weaved into the, the, the simple text. Um, let me just conclude with this um, one thought. I'm just going to mention just quickly what the Magalia Muko says on this word Magure, and then just, just add something to it myself. So Magure actually has the word Ger in it. Ger means a convert. And so the Magalia Muko says that at this period in, his, in, in Yaakov's life, he returned to the Megure, the Gerim, the converts of his father. And he says that on a very deep level, when Adam Harishon, when Adam ate and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge, basically it, it, it had a domino effect on the souls of the world. And that through their work in, in bringing them back to monotheism and to the recognition of, of Hashem, they were rectifying their souls. And so Yaakov Avinu wasn't as involved in this work up until this point of his life, but now Megure, which doesn't just mean the travels, the sojourns of his fathers, but that he returned back to the place where his fathers traveled around, meaning where they had been located. But rather, he went back to the work of his fathers, which was making Gerim. Okay, converts. Again, returning back to the fixing that needed to be done from the souls affected from Adam and Chava eating from the tree of knowledge. Now I just want to conclude with this one thought. This idea Magure, the, the, the travels, and also that it means converts on another, on another uh, level. You see, if you think of... Um, You know, I, I always think of what, something I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, that he said that in this day and age, that it, it's a criminal act to be superficial. It's, it's criminal. And so Judaism, unfortunately, more people don't under, know this about our teachings, that Judaism believes in reincarnation. The overwhelming majority of the, our greatest rabbis all believe in reincarnation. And so... When I think of reincarnation, I think, you know, you think of another lifetime, right? Or I'm just speaking for myself, I think of another lifetime. But really, we've been around for lifetimes. And so if you think about it, we're all these souls that are just swimming through time. All of us are swimming through souls, swimming through thousands of years. And more or less, I heard, and I don't have a source for this, I can't tell you this is a Jewish teaching, but I heard it from someone who was Jewish and who studies Torah, but I don't remember him telling me a source, so I'm just giving that as a caveat. But nonetheless, it's an interesting idea that the people who you deal with in this lifetime are people who you've dealt with in other lifetimes. So basically, if you know anybody, you've probably known them for a really long time. <laughs> So here we are, swimming together through time, through thousands of years together. And what's the whole kind of like, you know, just in terms of iconography, right? It's the Jewish people going through the desert to get to Israel. That's basically the model of, of reality. We're just traveling through Spain, Portugal, Iran, Africa, 
Europe, America, right? We're just traveling through all these countries on our way to Israel, on our way to the end, all together. It's basically, we're just mirroring, in, in a larger sense, what the Jews in the desert did. And they traveled in tribes, right? So who knows? Maybe the people who are in Australia, that's the tribe of Gad, right? <laughs> who knows? Jews in France, maybe that's Yisachar. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But we're basically just souls swimming through time. And we're going to get there. We're going to get there. But what intrigues me about this idea is that when you think in these terms, it's really hard to get upset about a stain on a carpet. <laughs> you know, when you've got a much broader perspective, then it's sort of like, you know something? I've dealt with these level issues so many times in my life, and I've gotten through it. I'm going to get through this too. And it should give us confidence and hope that we're going to make it. We're all going to make it, and we're all going to make it together. Okay, have a great week. Thank you.